Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show we do where we talk about the stuff we've seen since the last time we did one of these. I'm David. I'm Tyler. And we've got some uh, uh, fun uh, end of the year type stuff for me to catch up on, although not a lot of, not very much prestige awards type of consideration stuff, because that stuff is still to come Yeah, in, in many ways. Um, but also, also a... Uh, Nah, uh, a Christmas-ish movie tossed in there, which we'll get to. Okay. But I'm going to start with uh, um, a new Argentine, Argentine, Argentinian movie. Um, Argentinian, I think. Well, you, uh, I forgot you weren't here. Scott and I uh, discussed this at length when we did an episode on movies from Argentina um, <laughs> um, uh, about how uh, how many different ways there are to say it. Um, but a new movie called The Weasel's Tale. It's from the director of this, uh, The Secret in Their Eyes, which won okay. the uh, one of two movies from Argentina to win the Best Foreign Language Oscar. Um, I never saw that movie. I saw the terrible American remake. But uh, is, it, is it really terrible? I was I was curious about so it. So dull. Oh, it's too bad. So dull. Um, which is surprising, or uh, even more surprising, based if The Secret in the Rise is anything like The Weasel's Tale, um, it's anything but dull. The Weasel's Tale is not great, but it's a lot of fun. It it um, there, it, it it plays on what I guess we think of as like old Hollywood stereotypes, but obviously it's not Hollywood. It's uh, the the uh, Argentinian uh, uh, movie industry, but there's this. It's a very Sunset Boulevard type of setup. There's this grand dame who, a former grand dame of cinema, who now lives in a dilapidated mansion uh, with her. But she lives with her husband, who was an actor who was nowhere near as successful as she was. And then also, she lives with in her mansion lives her former director and screenwriter who collaborated on most of her, uh, big, um, big features. It used to be that it was like three couples who all lived in this home together, but the director and the screenwriters wives have both passed away. Mm-hmm. And so now you've got this woman and these three old men and the three old men are kind of like teamed up against her and, and they're very happy to like spend their days just drinking and playing pool and, uh, shooting weasels and stuff on the on the property uh where she you know yearns for a return to the uh whatever so um these two young real estate developers show up and they're like hey we'll buy your house from you and so then it turns into this game of uh scheming and cat and mouse between these crafty old men and these uh young uh unscrupulous real estate developers with uh this older woman stuck in the middle it's a lot of like it's a lot of fun it sounds fun yeah it is yeah that's it's a ton of fun um it but it also it sometimes it leans a little too heavily on the self awareness like mm. uh, I don't like like the screenwriter is a great character but also he has there's a, like there's a part at the beginning when the, when the developers first come to see the house and the and the woman is showing them around uh, in the tour of the movie you know she, the, the tour of the movie or the, sorry the tour of the house sort of serves as also her the exposition of her entire backstory. Um, so at the end of the tour, she's like, Oh, that tour took a long time. And the screenwriter's like, yes, almost an entire act. Like, 
Oh, yeah. oh like okay. this awareness that we're watching a movie and some of that stuff doesn't it, it seems the, a little much to me and the fact that like they're all movie people so they could conceivably think in those terms yeah but it's yeah. Still, yeah um but uh, uh so it, in that way there's a lot of things about the movie that i think are when taken if you step back and look at the movie there's it's kind of thin soup but when you're in it there are so many great individual scenes there's a scene between again the screenwriter and the female young real estate developer that's this battle of wits that plays out while they play an entire game of billiards and i'm pretty sure there's almost certainly some visual effects in there because there's no way they would have taken them years to get this all these shots exactly uh, i mean shots in both the cinematic and the billiards uh, yeah. sense of, of the word were uh, exactly right but it's a delightfully fun scene later the director uh, character has a whole uh, uh monologue there's um uh it's a, it's it's a, it's a lot of fun it's worth watching it tends to there are you know parts of it i've already forgotten it's not going to make a huge impact on you but it's an enjoyable watch the weasel's tail is what it's called it's got a fun name too yeah weasel's tail. uh next up a movie that uh you and i both expressed interest in on the winter movie preview i'm here to tell you the interest is well founded even okay. though i don't think anyone He's going to see this. People already seem to not care about it. But I watched Jamie ba Jamie Babbitt's The Stand-In, oh, okay. uh, which is uh, Drew Barrymore in a challenging dual role. Uh, she plays a, uh, uh, an actress named Candy Black, who's, as we learn, the uh, uh, Hollywood's most lucrative or most financially successful female comedy star. That's who the character is. But she's made her entire career out of physical comedy she falls down a lot um and uh she doesn't like it uh she's doesn't like her life doesn't uh have any friends um and she has this big uh blow up on seth it gets caught on camera and sort of ends her career which unfortunately also ends the career of her stand-in who yeah. has been with her through thick and thin or whatever played by also by drew barrymore uh and then the movie sort of jumps ahead five years and i won't go in to much detail but uh there's a i will say there's a reference to all about eve in the movie that kind of gives you an idea of what the broad lines of the of the plot are um but i i think this is uh, a movie that is i think failing a failure of marketing in some ways because it's a much it's very funny at times but it's also it's a much uh, more melancholy character-based movie than i think uh the studio is pushing it uh, as there's a there's a lot of sad long sad parts in this movie that drew barrymore i think she's giving two different performances one's better than the other i think the the bitter actress is a a better role i think the 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 eager stand-in that's i think part of the movie's problem is it feels like Drew Barrymore didn't write the movie, but it feels like it could have been written by a celebrity as a way of like saying, Oh, you think it's so great to be a celebrity. And so I feel yeah. like Drew Barrymore definitely identifies more with the, with the character who is a celebrity and the movie kind of exists to put the wannabe celebrity through the ringer. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Okay. So there's a, there's, it's a little superficial in that way, but it's still well-made. It's fun. I will word of warning. This movie was made two years ago over two years ago and tj miller uh, is in it sure. uh that wouldn't happen today um uh his career uh is not what it was uh for a number of reasons he still shows up in things but i guess it's because 
they're coming out now, but they were yeah. made one, two years ago, whatever. Yeah. But, um, they're, yeah. Uh, so that I know he's a turnoff to a lot of people and I super get it because, uh, a number of the, I mean, there are stories about him, but then there are also just things that we know he did, you know, yeah. the, uh, um, uh, the called in we, like a bomb threat or something. He called in a bomb threat yeah. on a train. He also said, uh, um, the email he sent to a transgender film critic, uh, um, that got leaked. I mean, you can read the email. It's, uh, it's awful. It's very transphobic and, and mean. Um, uh, uh, yeah, he seems like a, a truly <laughs> unhinged person, uh, yeah. who could probably use a lot of help. Hopefully he's kidding it, but yeah. that's not the point. The point is the stand in, uh, is, an enjoyable uh, movie. There you go. All right. Uh, so this this week, nothing but rewatches, um, just because of the type of week that I that I had. But uh, I will say, not that I, I don't know if people are disappointed when I just have rewatches or whatever. But um, I will say that uh, this coming week, my semester is done, and so I uh, I'm planning on delving into some of the movies that you're talking about, sort of these end of the year type things. Uh, and I'm actually quite excited, but this, this week, as people know, Jen and I, and a f- another friend have been going through uh, the star Wars movies in order of uh, events, not necessarily in order of release. And so uh, this, this is going to cover three of the four movies I have to talk about uh, today. Um, the first being rogue one. Uh, a movie that you really like and I really mm-hmm. liked. Um, this is this will be my third time seeing it, and I loved it the first time, and and also loved it the second time. This time, I there are I love the last forty five minutes to an hour. Up to that point, you know, it's sort of like something you and I said about the Avengers uh, in twenty twelve that like. Once you've once you've seen it, like you appreciate all the character introduction initially, but then once you've seen it, there's kind of this feeling of like, ah, all right, yeah, like it's not even so much get to the action; it's get to the ensemble. And I think um, in in watching this movie, I like a lot of the individual characters, but I think the thing that I really felt was like missing because you know a lot of people including me in their review talked about how this felt like an old world war ii type movie and i think it does but the thing that it's missing is like long stretches of the entire group talking about where they've come from where they're going what they need to do how they feel about what they need to do um we get we get like little pairings that do that, Mm -hmm. but never the group itself. And there's, uh, you know, within the rogue one squadron, whatever you want to call, there's really only six characters. And so like, once they get, I think we spend so much time weaving in and out of the plot and getting them together. And then once they are together, we jump into the mission, which makes sense. But I feel like we could, I feel like the movie could have been a little bit longer. I feel like it could have been probably like 10 more minutes of the of us getting to know these characters in context of each other um i think really would have would have made the last 45 minutes to an hour which is still very effective um i think would have made it even more effective in the same way that when you're watching saving private ryan you know so many of these characters are gone like they they are dispatched towards the end of the film and you know 
it's not merely that you're on board with their mission and you have a sense of who they are. You have a pretty strong idea of not merely who they are in and of themselves, but the role they play in the platoon. And I feel like Rogue One is is missing that, which is understandable. It's not meant to be. It's meant to evoke a certain type of movie, not necessarily be that. But I do feel like when you're trying to evoke that thing, it's unfortunate if you decide like certain aspects of that need to be discarded, because I think as an ensemble, I like all these characters and I like these actors. I just wanted to be, I just wanted to spend a little bit more time with them as a unit before we get into like the last big battle, which I love. And I love their death scenes. Like their death scenes really are really effective for me, especially oddly enough, Riz Ahmed's um, because it's that thing. That's the one I thought of. Yeah the grenade gets thrown in and there's just that look on his face. It's a very world war two type of thing. This look of like, Oh, I'm done. Like there's nothing, there's nothing that can be done. It's a moment of realization, not panic, nor is it at peace. It's just, this is what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. And then it happens. And there's something very unsettling about that. I've always found. Um, And that is a very world war two type movie uh, thing to see. And I feel for that character, but I feel like, but I would like to have felt more for, for who he is and what the unit is losing by losing him. So I don't mean to suggest that the film is, is bad by any stretch. It's more just like, you know, this is my third time seeing it. And you know, once you see something a third or fourth time, you start to be like, I, I officially like this, but could it be better? And in this case, I think it probably could have been with maybe five to 10 more minutes. I think you make a good case. I haven't seen it since, since uh, the press screening, but, um, uh, I think the reason I, there are multiple reasons. I I like the movie, but I think the main reason that I responded to it is that after three George Lucas prequels that looked like screensavers and then yeah. the force awakens, which looks like a, you know, post MCU goopy mess of a movie. Okay. We had a Star Wars movie that looks like a movie. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Oh, absolutely. And I, I really, I really uh, responded to that, but maybe which that's I just th- me being an old uh, coot. Well, and that's the thing is it wasn't, it wasn't one of the chapters, which means in a way it's sort of, I mean, it's certainly, there's a lot of fan service and stuff, but it does need to stand on its own, which means like it needs to sort of function as a movie on its own without relying too much on this or that. It still does do that, but uh, not as much as some of the other movies. Anyway, go on. All right. Next up for me is a kind of sort of Christmas movie. Well, okay. There's a definite Christmas movie that I love called the shop around the corner. Sure. And I have seen it multiple times and had never seen its 1998 remake. You've got mail. Okay. So, uh, Natalie and I watched you've got mail and look, it's a Nora Ephron movie. Mm-hmm. She's got her charms. It's Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan. They're great together. They've got their charms, but this is no shop around the corner. And it's also, it's interesting on, okay. On the upcoming episode, you and I are, are with our guest are going to be talking about a movie whose sort of um, gender politics didn't age very well. Sure. Um, you've got mail has, it does something. So the, the premise of shop around the corner is the two people who don't get along coworkers who don't get along are pen pals uh, and don't realize it. Like they love their pen pals. They don't realize they're also the people that they don't like. Um, and in that movie, the man does find out before the woman and doesn't tell her right away. But in you've got mail, Tom Hanks finds out who Meg Ryan is. And then there's a huge whole long part of the movie where like, like Mel Gibson and what women want, he's like manipulating her into 
accepting him as a romantic partner. It's like, it doesn't even feel romantic to me. And I'm not sure. Have, have things changed that much in 22 years that that's something that seems this disrespectful of Meg Ryan's character's autonomy and is, uh, uh, I mean, are, are they supposed to start a relationship together? Like based entirely on what is at this point, literal months of deception. Yeah. Um, it's, it's so bizarre to me that, that I, I couldn't really get on board up until that point. The movie has plenty of charm. Obviously these two actors are, are, are fantastic. You've also got, uh, you've got great Kinnear. You've got Parker Posey. Who's great. Dave Chappelle yeah. is in a few scenes. Da- uh, Dabney um, Coleman is really good. Dabney Coleman. Yeah. I forgot yeah. about him. Um, I, I Parker Posey say... is probably my favorite of the, uh, uh sure. of the uh, ancillary characters, partially because in one way, she is very much like me because I don't know if you remember the scene. They come home from a party together, and uh, he like can't sleep, so he ends up getting up to like write uh, another email to his pen pal. But she goes from like talking, talking, talking to this like lays her head down on the pillow, falls asleep <laughs> immediately, and starts snoring. And I have to say, sadly, I have to say that is me. I am someone who. I will fall asleep the second my wife, who is a very light sleeper and has difficult falling to sleep, difficult falling to sleep, I think sometimes resents me for A, how easily I fall asleep, yeah. which is literally within seconds, and B, the fact that I snore. <laughs> yeah, that you fall asleep immediately so that you can better keep her from sleep. Right, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, uh, I should say, so I haven't seen Shop Around the Corner. I, I love You've Got Mail. Really? Um, although, admittedly, uh, I... I like I don't necessarily view it as as problematic, but I actually do think the idea of one character having the the whole picture you can do something with that. I mean, uh, uh, enough said. Um, kind of is is right, that yeah. in some ways, um, and and that was my favorite the, movie that, that year. Movie up also, to a point. I think. Uh, enough said also recognizes at a certain point that what she's doing is not okay. Right. I think it's also one of those things where it's just like characters learning about each other. And I do think that he is sincerely, he is sincerely learning about her and putting himself out there, but there's this other thing. And I'm okay with, with the film having that up to a certain point, because it's kind of like, it's a conceit, you know what I mean? Um, But I do think that's my least I say my least favorite, I won't say part, I'll say aspect. My least favorite aspect is one character knows more than another. And I feel like unless you're willing to deal with not necessarily the moral ramifications, but the complexity of that, like you, you that it's, they could have turned it a little bit farcical. And I think I would have liked that as well. Um, yeah. But uh, I think I like them so much and I do it's, I know it's, Man, there there are certain lines in that movie that I love, and I think a lot of it has to do with the delivery. There is that wonderful line that, if as written, could not it could possibly not work, but Tom Hanks makes it work, unsurprisingly, where he talks about like, you know, if you can forgive this guy uh, for standing you up, then you know, like maybe you can forgive me for putting you out of business. And then he pauses. He's like, Oh, how I hope you would. And it's such a, it's such an earnest plea. And I really, uh, it really works for me. Like the, the uh, J, friend of the show, Jason Egan and I were talking about this last week, how much we both enjoy this movie. It, it surprises me how much I enjoy it. Usually 
and this is not an uncommon thing, especially with romantic comedies. Any uh, any conceit, any like plot thing that adds an element of an unlikely element of complexity, usually that's the part where I'm like, yeah, okay, whatever, who cares? It's like uh, this is not interesting to me. It, it actually might keep me from embracing the actual relationship. Like if you just have the characters connecting with each other in some way. And I recognize that this is the, the story requires the pen pal thing. But um, if you just, if you just trust that, like that's definitely enough for me, especially when you have great actors with good chemistry. Um, but yeah. And so like, I see what you mean. I, I definitely see what you mean. Um, and I feel like that's the part that works least for me on a movie level, but I still like the characters so much. And I, and it might be that I like the performers so much that, uh, that and, I, I mean, really enjoy you the movie. Out, I mean, you call that a version of a dialogue that, uh, or a line that could be awkward if it weren't, but a lot of the lines, I mean, it's still an over and or Efron movie. A lot of the lines are, yeah. are, are great. Uh, they really, yeah. they really sing. I love that. Even though it's like mean spirited, the way that, the Fox family, Tom yeah. Hanks and his father and grandfather talk about the small businesses they're putting out of order, yeah. out, of, out of business is like mean, but it's like, it's funny. I have to admit yeah. a lot of it's pretty funny. Yeah. Um, all right. And then next up for me is the final small acts film education. Um, look, all the small acts films are, are good. Uh, this isn't my least favorite of them. Uh, it, it has a lot going for it, but it feels so, uh, you know, all of the small acts films, the whole, uh, the whole conceit is that these are the stories of the uh, 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 West Indian or black uh, experience uh, in London in the late tw mid to late 20th century. And therefore, obviously a lot of them have to do with the things you would call like issues, like issues based movies. Yeah. Um, and, and a number of them are, uh, uh, at least three of the five are based directly in real, uh, on real, uh, events. And yet education is the one that feels the most thesis driven in, uh, an unfortunate way. It, it's, it stars, or it's about a, uh, uh, a boy who's a bright boy who wants to be uh, an, an astronaut, um, but he is, uh, it takes place in around 1970. Um, but he is, when you and I watching from with our 2020 eyes, 50 years uh, after the fact, we go, oh, I'm pretty sure that kid's dyslexic. Oh, yeah. um, he's clearly okay. very, he's clearly smart and he, and he has a lot of, uh, passion for, uh, certain subjects in, in school at least, but he can't really read. And so he ends up getting shunted off to this special school, the school for an ESN school, educationally subnormal. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, these, and this is where these are real, uh, these are real schools. I'm not sure if they still, uh, uh, exist that are like on the surface, their mission statement is, yeah, it's like a remedial school for kids who have trouble, but really it's just a holding cell for kids. They don't want in the right. main public schools. And so these kids are not really being taught. The teachers there don't care and their futures are being, uh, um, compromised if not completely destroyed by uh by being shunted off into the, into this system uh and so the movie is full of fantastic scenes that are very emotionally effective fantastic performances a sense of time and place it has all the good things that all the small x movies have so i still think it's very good a very good watchable movie but grading on the curve of the small x movies it just feels a little bit too 
uh, um, consciously point making. Yeah. Whereas I think the other the other films generally tend to be uh, uh, atmosphere and character and setting and, and tone and mood first. And this everything seems to sort of follow the 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 history lesson that, that we're that we're getting. And I can I can imagine Steve McQueen being overtly point making is probably more obvious and maybe less palatable than other directors because he he can have such a heavy hand. Um, oh yeah, like, yeah. That's, I see what you're saying. Yeah, you, you know what I mean. Like it's just like that heavy hand. If if he is just dealing in atmosphere and character, it's like wonderful. But if he's got a point to make, then it's like oh boy, here we go. Like there's not going to be a lot of subtlety there. All right, you're up next. Next up, unsurprisingly, is Star Wars A New Hope, um, which because it starts immediately after Rogue One, uh, we chose to watch it a, the day after Rogue One. Um, usually there's like a week in between, uh, okay. but we thought like, no, let's do this uh, so that we feel like we're going right into the next thing. And uh, and it definitely gave, watching it so soon after, gave me an appreciation for the way that they wrote rogue one to play into a lot of the stuff that the characters are talking about in new hope. Um, so you and I've talked about this. So I, I was raised watching star Wars and playing with the action figures. I loved it was my, like one of my favorite things. And then as I got older, I just kind of moved away from it. Um, not out of, not to be contrarian, but I just, it just didn't hold, you know, I got more into like, more cynical movies and, and certain types of genre and like, and star Wars was not that. And so I had an appreciation for it and that was it. But I do think that, especially when you go, when you see what star Wars has become, when you see the movies that have been inspired by star star Wars, you go back and watch those original movies. And by the way, empire's coming up. Uh, you watch those original movies and you come to realize like, man, these are pretty damn good, like on their own level. And, 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 from a because I because one of the things that I lecture about is story structure, uh, and I talk about you know the hero's journey. I mean Star Wars. Uh, and I mean I'm not going to say a New Hope. I'm going to say it the way I said it growing up. Star Wars, and I'm just going to I'm just going to trust that people know that I mean the '77 film. Um, it's structurally it is so effective, and it is one of the best arguments that can be that can be made about like hey you don't need to stray too far from this. It will work. This, the, the hero's journey, like the role of the mentor, the role of, of, you know, the call to, to adventure, all of that, like it can work and you can make it and it can feel totally original. You know, you, even though we're, we're all at this point so familiar with Luke Skywalker and Chewbacca and Han Solo and Darth Vader, we're so familiar with these characters. You watch it here and it just feels novel. It just feels so it just crackles with energy, even though it's not nearly as fast paced as, as as the new Star Wars movies. It just like it has such a laser focus on the story that it's telling and how to tell it and what the end raising the stakes to the point where it's just like so many, you know, so many characters like when they have been reused in the prequels or the Disney uh, Star Wars movies like C-3PO and R2-D2 or Yoda or whatever, um, which is Empire, Empire, but um, they feel like they're not used well in, in those because they're sort of perfunctory. Whereas here, George Lucas, he wasn't, aside from, you know, old serials and uh, Kurosawa films, 
he didn't have any obligation to make these characters one thing or another. And he just said like, well, it's these characters are here because I want them to be here and they have a purpose and everything feels it's so interesting. Like from a structural standpoint, you can, you can mark off everything as you're going along. You can mark mm-hmm. where act one stops and act two starts. And yet like you can do that, but you won't because everything just feels so novel and feels it, it has the, the, it has its own convictions so that it's, it's acting like there's no such thing as the hero's journey. It's just, this is Luke Skywalker and this is what's going on. And it's so it's refreshing, not just in regards to the new Star Wars movies, but in regards to new blockbusters. It has all the things that a blockbuster has. And I'm trying I'm not trying to say like things were better back then. There's a lot of wonderful blockbusters now, but there is something to be said about a film that just it's like these these are the people that we have to that we've gotten together. This is their mission and they're going to do it. And that's the story. That's the one story we're telling. And uh I ha- clearly I've not seen a new hope in a while. Um, and in watching it, I think in the context, maybe of the star Wars movies that I've been watching up to this point. And I think just as a function of being, being a teacher and, and having an appreciation for what people were doing in the seventies, uh, I just come to really appreciate it. And I will also say, this is not a popular thing. Uh, I definitely like it better than empire. Um, which I will talk about more in a moment, but um, you know, a lot of people say like empire is like the best one and it's my favorite one or whatever. And it's great. But I do think that again, there's that novelty of a new hope that I think uh, none of the other star Wars movies have understandably. So, and it's just, it's invigorating to watch it. And I'm so glad that I watched it again. Cause I think it would have been easy. It's like, well, we are, we, we've all seen this and we all, we grew up with it. I know it all. I already know it really well. We probably could skip this and just go straight to the, the Disney movies. Uh, but no, we're watching it all the way through. And I'm so glad that we are. Cause it gave me a new appreciation for it. A new hope, a new hope. One could say, uh, all right, well, let's move on to a movie that offers no hope, but that I really, really liked, okay. uh, all right. um, uh, a very nasty little horror thriller called thriller called Hunter Hunter directed by Sean Linden starring uh, all your 90s faves are back uh, Devin Sawa and uh, uh, Nick Stahl. Um, oh, wow. Um, but uh, I, I won't go too much into the Nick Stahl part because I don't want to give too much of the storyline away. But basically, Devin Sawa and an actress named Camille Sullivan and uh, uh, a young girl named summer howell i can't remember now the actress's name but they're a family they live in the woods and then we come to learn they live way in the woods where no one else uh lives and they live this sort of like back to nature survivalist lifestyle um and uh but uh and then you know they they survive by uh catching killing animal you know hunting and then selling meat and pelts in the nearest town um which is miles away um uh but the market's drying up for these that sort of thing they're uh they're 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 struggling uh, uh economically and so when they realize that a wolf keeps picking off the animals that are in their traps this is 
a big deal. This is like literally life or death for them. So Devin Sawa, uh, unrecognizable by the way, like I knew Devin Sawa was in the movie and it took me a few scenes to be like, Oh, that's Devin's like that gruff muscular yeah. man with a beard and like a, a, a skull cap on, you know, pointing that uh, rifle at things. That's Devin Sawa. Um, is it just that it, does he just like, does he look notably different or is it just, Oh yeah, he's an adult and adults look different than teenagers. Yeah. He does look, different but also this is not a, the kind of role that he was known for sure. in like idle hands and final destination this is sure. like uh this is very much akin to uh, in many ways uh when ethan embry was in that masters of horror uh one uh that the, the don cascarelli one uh incident on and off mountain road which is a similar thing he was like a beefed up survivalist type yeah. um and maybe that's that's what these like 90s heart teen like heartthrobs that's how they come back the rights of it's a rite of passage um so the point is, so, so the movie is that Devin Sawa sets off uh, to go track and kill this wolf that's that's uh, uh, picking off their uh, their um, uh, their livelihood essentially. And then twist, I would give away one twist. There's the movie has more things to offer, so I'm not really giving things away. Uh, the wolf is a red herring, as it turns out, oh. because what he ends up finding elsewhere deep in the woods is the dumping ground of a serial killer. He finds a bunch of mutilated, uh, female bodies. It's very important as female because his sort of, he has a wife and a daughter. So his instincts, yeah. uh, uh, kick in and he sets out to, instead of track this wolf, he's going to find and track this serial killer. This sounds uh, great. He leaves his, but he leaves his wife and daughter home alone for days at a time now. And so they're in being sort of parallel storylines, you know, he, he basically to keep them from danger, he ends up putting them in danger, uh, in, yeah. in a way. Um, uh, it's, and I would say, uh, this is, I don't think this is really a spoiler. As the movie goes on, the movie also pulls a little bit of a of, of a feint here by positioning Devin Sawa as the main character. And we come to realize as the movie goes on that Camille Sullivan, the, the wife uh, and mother, is really the main character of this story. Hmm. Um, but uh, the, the movie is just very economical. It's like 92 minutes long, um, beautifully shot, great droning, ominous score. Um, and I will say it just slight word of warning like i said at the beginning not a hopeful movie <laughs> not, not not a movie that uh uh feels good about the chances of people living uh, uh on the fringes of the economy i will say uh it but sounds it's really it's, good yeah i mean it's uh, it's kind of a horror i say horror thriller it's more of a nature thriller there's not that much sure. in it that i would call horror horror it's more of a thriller but it is a nasty piece of work um terrifically uh terrifically shot and composed and well acted especially it's camille sullivan i didn't know her at all before but she's uh, really really good in this in this role hmm. all right uh, and then next up for me is Dion taylor's fatale which is uh, uh a new uh michael ely uh hillary swank joint is the you know the the um title is obviously a play on femme fatale but also it's short for fatal attraction because it has a very similar premise and then michael ely uh is a self-made uh wealthy man a former former uh college basketball player turned sports agent who along with uh, his buddy mike coulter or the character mike coulter is playing uh has started his own their own agency and has risen up through the ranks and is 
now doing very well for himself, beautiful, uh, home in the Hollywood Hills. Uh, but all the years of hard work and long hours have put a strain in his marriage. So at the beginning of the movie, he's celebrating, they're celebrating, uh, his company, but also he's trying to rekindle his marriage. It's not really working. So he, he goes to Vegas for a bachelor party weekend, ends up taking off his wedding ring and having a one night stand with Hillary Swank's, uh, character. And then, um, uh, later, a few days later, he's back in town. He's trying to, once again, he's still trying to hide that this happened, forget that this happened, trying to reconnect with his wife. There's a break in at his home and, uh, in the middle of the night and he fights off the intruder. Uh, and then the cops show up and guess who the lead detective on the case is? Oh. <laughs> it's Hillary Swank. Um, so, uh, the movie, like I said, fatal attraction. It has this sort of like uh, wealthy man has uh, you know one night of weakness and has to pay for it because this crazy bee uh, <laughs> shows yeah. back up in his life. It's not uh, it's not the most um, progressive movie, I think, in terms of its uh, its its morality. Um, but neither are I mean a lot of the best movies that are trashy or risque or that sort of thing tend to actually come from a pretty morally conservative place. And, uh, I, I, I have no qualms with that. That's what I'm signing up for. I, I, I liked it, but, um, uh, I would say the weakness of this movie is that unfortunately, Michael Ely and Hilary Swank just don't have chemistry together. It's unfortunate because I like both those actors and I don't know why it's not working. Um, uh, I, I, or maybe that's a choice that Deanne Taylor made to, to, to put them at odds too soon. But I think yeah. that I, I feel like the movie would have been more rewarding and more enticing in a way is if, even if, even as she starts to be a menace to his life, we still feel like he wants to fuck her, you know, like, I feel like that would be a more interesting movie and that's kind of what yeah. I wanted. Um, but uh, it's really just that one night and then they're, they never really have a spark again, uh, unfortunately. But the selling point is Deion Taylor's eye, or I should say Dante Spinotti's eye. The movie is shot by Dante oh, Spinotti. Nice. Uh, and, but also his uh, sort of almost, almost just vulgar, uh, Deion Taylor's vulgar, like wish fulfillment idea of just like, uh, uh, conspicuous consumption and materialism. Like all of these characters are so rich and live in such beautiful homes and drive these amazing cars and every piece of clothing they own, every accessory they own uh, is, is luxurious. And uh, that stuff is super fun for me. Again, not ethically where my head is, but still super fun to, to, to watch. And, uh, yeah, I can't, I couldn't help. It's funny. I was watching the movie. I didn't know at first that it was on this and I'm watching the movie and I'm like, this looks like a Michael Mann movie. And, yeah. uh, it turns out it's Dante Spinotti. So, uh, there are things definitely to recommend about this movie. There are some things where places where it could have been better. It's not as good as the last, um, Deion Taylor film, which was also written by the same screenwriter and also starred Michael Ely. And that's the intruder. Actually, that wasn't the last one. He made black and blue in between this guy cranks out movies, mm -hmm. but the intruder from last year, uh, is, uh, a more successful movie, but that doesn't mean that I don't, uh, cautiously recommend fatal. Well, and I do wonder, um, you know, in talking about the dynamic of uh, fatal attraction, which is like, ah, this, this woman can't handle this guy be, you know, whatever. But I do, I'm, especially when you bring up the intruder, it's like, well, here we have 
a white character who is also in a position of authority who can't handle like this wealthy African-American man, like just doing things the way he wants to do them. Um, so I do one, I'm curious, like, like as a, as a companion film to the intruder, this idea of like, of like white, not necessarily fragility, but like this feeling of like, whoa, 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 hang on now. I'm fine to, you know, uh, provide you with whatever you, you need, but at the same time, let's not act as though, uh, you have any kind of autonomy or agency in your own life. Like you are still at my mercy. Um, so I do wonder having not seen the film, but once you mentioned the intruder, I was like, Oh, it's uh, worth thinking about, I think. Yeah, well, you know what else the screenwriter wrote? A movie that uh, no one cares about, but that I loved uh, from 2008, I think. Neil LeBute's Lakeview Terrace. Lakeview Terrace? Okay. I yeah. was I was curious about that. Yeah, yeah um, same screenwriter. Okay. Um, I love Lakeview Terrace. <laughs> I've n- I never saw it. I really want, I wanted to at the time. And then, of course, it just kind of went away. But I love, I kind of love Neil LeBute and his... A uh, craven way of looking at humanity. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, you know, it makes me feel like an optimist, which is nice. Um, okay. Uh, is it my turn? Yeah. Uh, you've okay. got one. I've got one. Then you've got one. Okay. Uh, next up is, of course, The Empire Strikes Back, um, a film that uh, I've, again, it's it's been a long time since I've seen it, but I watched it several times growing up. It is b- uh, beautifully directed by Irving Kirshner. And I do think that... Um, it's probably a better looking movie than star Wars, but that also makes sense because they also have a better budget. Mm-hmm. But um, I also think that they're very, there's a visionary quality, like, you know, the, it's that kind it's that idea that I really like where, whether it be from a story standpoint or an action standpoint, it's okay. Where, where are we? Okay. We're on an ice planet. Okay. Let's, let's really exploit that. Let, let's look at, there's an ice cave. There's an ice, uh, an ice monster. There's this and that, like, I don't want to just hap, you know, haphazardly, uh, just have this be like an exotic environment. The end, like we were, we are going to like really utilize this and same with, uh, like the Dagobah system with, uh, Yoda, everything. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Just, Something yeah. for off mic. No, it's something for for work. Just I got oh, a work. Got okay, I just got a work email that sucks. <laughs> I feel like there aren't many work emails I get that I'm like, great, this is exactly well. It's except sarcastically, um, but yeah, and same with like the Dagobah system and even uh, Bespin. I mean, there aren't that many places that we explore in an Empire Strikes Back, but like it really. It's like, if we're going to be here, let's be here and really explore the exotic nature of where we are. And I really like that because Empire Strikes Back is a very small story, actually, you know, for the empire striking back. What it really means is it use it, it, it uh, uses Han Solo and Princess Leia to uh, lure in and trap Luke Skywalker. And I guess there is like on the, on, on Hoth, uh, the empire does like uncover a rebel base and, and, and destroy it. So that's a big thing, but like everything goes from, goes from being like, you know, the, the rebels versus the empire. And it actually becomes much more personal. Uh, as you can see like this, you know, empire strikes, but entire empire strikes back takes place in like a few days, really. I mean, maybe like a week, if that, and it really, it, 
once once they get off the the ice planet it really is just about a handful of characters including darth vader and i think that's really that there's a boldness there that i really appreciate um because even though the budget is bigger and we do see like this really interesting battle at the beginning of the film after the first movie there could have been tremendous temptation to make this thing bigger than life make it huge uh but they they actually make it in some ways a little bit more intimate and i think that's really really fascinating and they explore the world of star wars but also they explore concepts like the force and and all of that so um i do like i i do like it a lot i might even love it um but unlike other people i don't really quite enjoy it as much as a new hope because i think there's still the novelty there uh but i do i do like it a lot it's and and you know obviously next up is going to be return of the jedi i'm interested to see what i think about that as well because by the time you get to that star wars is now very officially here and mm. now they're selling lunch boxes they're selling all kinds of toys and how will that reflect will that reflect on the third film i think it probably will but uh, empire strikes back uh you know what thumbs up all right final movie for me and uh this is a disappointment well speaking okay i earlier i talked about the stand-in the movie that you and i were both interested in we did the winter movie preview that i liked a movie that i expressed some skeptics now i almost feel like i uh it was a self-fulfilling prophecy I and mean, i sort of expressed some skepticism about a movie on the winter movie preview and ended up not liking it very much uh and i also feel bad i don't know i, I Okay. Eventually I'll go to the movies. Okay. I know I've been like, I self-describe myself as a contrarian. I've been described as a contrarian sometimes, but I don't actually like, it makes me feel bad to not like a movie that a lot of other people like. Right. I put off, like I'm putting off writing this review because I feel bad that I don't like this movie. That's many people like, but, uh, promising young woman really didn't work for me, unfortunately. Um, and I'll tell you why. Here's the thing. When it comes to uh, what this movie is saying and what it's about, I agree with everything it's saying. But of course I do, because that's what the movie is for. It's a movie that is made to be agreed with. Yeah. And so I don't feel there's no there's no there's nothing challenging to the viewer. There's nothing challenging within the movie. Um, it, it, uh, it, it just feels like it's a series of just like set them up and knock them down. And again, not not straw man arguments. These are like real arguments. They're like, it's, uh, it's a, a dark comedy about rape culture. If you don't know what the, I don't want to give too much. There's a lot of twists and turns in this one. I don't want to give right. too much away about what happens in the movie, but, uh, Carrie Mulligan plays a character who spends her evenings, uh, teaching men lessons, I guess. Um, but that's really what I'm telling you. That's just the beginning. It, it goes in more places, but I don't want to give stuff away. Um, and these aren't, like I said, these aren't straw man arguments. We've, uh by we i mean men women obviously have known about these things but the me too uh uh uh, movement has made it impossible for men to ignore that these things happen to women on uh uh on a on a shockingly uh regular uh basis and and that men like the men that we see in promising young women women promising young women uh exist and they prey on women uh uh, and it's uh, often been very easy for them to get away with it. All of the things that it's saying, I know and agree with. It's just that the way that it says them feels way too 
conveniently drawn, like sort of neatly compiled argument is because it's not actually arguing with anyone. It's just arguing. It's building up like uh, you can win an argument you're having with yourself and you can even be right. You know what I mean? But it's, it's, it's not, uh, it's not necessarily um, for me. It wasn't interesting to watch. The movie is almost a full two hours. It goes on for a very long time. I will say Emerald Fennel uh, visually. I think the movie uh, is a delight. There's a, it looked very visually, very interesting. Yeah. It's uh, I, I described it as a dark comedy. It's not actually very funny to be honest, but it has a great comic tone and feel and look that is sure. that is very well uh developed and and the movie is uh ne- never really boring to to look at and that's definitely that definitely goes a long way i don't want to uh undersell that i just uh I, I i just felt really uh unmoved by the uh a movie that um you know what it reminded me of do you vice vice no everything no, that you're it's saying not that no it's not like that no it's that's the thing it's not that head up its own ass it's not that okay. smug it's not not smug but it's not really that that smug right. i think because the things that it's arguing for and the things that it's arguing against are serious issues and it feels passionately about them and so that's why it's not like it doesn't feel like vice to me because it like i, I feel like Adam McKay is just trying to like win something there. Whereas yeah. this is, uh, this is, this is different. It's, it's better than vice, Okay, but getting away from movies. I know that, you know, as a fan of stand up comedy and person who listens to stand up comedy podcast, where people like to talk about the ins and outs of stand up comedy. I know you're familiar with the term clapter. Yes. Very much. Yes. So. Yes. So the idea of a comedian getting the audience on his or her side by, stating things that the audience is going to agree with and then they applaud instead of laugh. And a lot of comedians talk about this disdainfully because you're supposed to, you're supposed to be funny when you're a comedian and just saying things that you, that are safe. Yeah. Safe declarations that will get people on your side. It's not that hard to get people to clap really. (laughs) Yeah. And that's, I I guess that's what uh, promising woman woman felt like to me is uh, Mm. a cinematic version of clapter. That's that's too bad. I do like Carrie. I mean, the whole cast looks great, but I, I'm a big yeah. fan of Carrie Mulligan. Um, okay, so my last film once again is a rewatch. It is a Christmas movie directed by John Favreau. It is Elf, uh, a film that I don't remember if you like or not. Oh yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. Man, I love it. Like I love it. Uh, maybe okay. I could quote lines from Elf all day. Maybe the funniest line to me is uh, when he answers the phone and says, buddy, the elf, what's your favorite color? (laughs) (laughs) It's there's a lot. So as we were watching it, uh, Jen and I, um, she I don't think she knew that John Favreau had made it uh when when his name popped up the first thing she said was man he must be so rich (laughs) (laughs) yeah he really probably is oh oh yes like because i've also been watching the mandalorian and he created that show and he and he directs it and then of course like he's a producer he's like a a credited producer on the entire mcu it's like yeah he's probably doing okay uh yeah and not to mention zathura but anyway um but the but it's not me like 
there's so many things about Elf that I love. And I think the thing that jumped out to me this time, aside from the fact that Buddy the Elf is unironically optimistic the entire time. Like it'd be very easy to have all the other characters, the cynical characters, like look at him and we're all sort of mocking. We, we like him, but we're mocking him. Um, it's not merely that it is all. It's also like, I love the way the North pole looks and I know what John Favreau is going for. He's going for those like Rankin bass mm-hmm. type, but he's, totally committing to it uh, in the color scheme in just the inherent artificiality of it. I'm not going to go so far as say it's expressionistic, but when you do have human characters occupying that space, it's a little Caligari esque. Um, And, and I, and I just love how he just commits to that. And just like the North pole isn't only a magic place. It is a place that is so just when you see him walking around New York, you're like, Oh, these are just completely different worlds. One place is magical and just completely otherworldly. And as opposed to just the harsh reality. And, uh, and I really like how much he commits to that and just decides he's going to, uh, just play in into that, into our idea, our collective idea of what Christmas is. You know, there's there's a there is an artificiality to it as far as like uh, pop culture, and so like it, the film, it's so much more visually and tonally than it ever needed to be. Uh, you know, I think John Favreau certainly as he as he got a higher budget, I think he visually maybe took fewer risks. I don't think I'm even going to say maybe. I think he definitely took took fewer risks. Like when you get into um, Star Wars stuff and and uh, Marvel stuff, um, but he does have a sensibility and a sense of like, well, this is the concept, and I'm committing 100% to it. So this is just how it is. And in the case of something like Elf, uh, to commit to that concept meant I wouldn't say it's necessarily a risk, but it definitely. Uh, could be jarring to to maybe younger kids who are unfamiliar with the the Rankin Bass um, uh, short you know uh, short TV movies. Like I I didn't necessarily grow up with them, and then as I got older, I saw them. Like it's because I feel like even if you even if you haven't seen those things, it might it might still feel right that Chris that the North Pole would look like this. Um, it would look like a toy in and of itself. And uh, yeah, I really I really en- I mean, we all enjoy it. But uh, I'm trying to if I'm going to rewatch something, I'm trying to look at it through like a different lens of appreciation. And uh, sure enough, I I love Elf even more than I than I did before. Merry Christmas. <laughs>